Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host and an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Richard White back to the New Books Network. Dr. White is the Margaret Byrne Emeritus Professor of History at Stanford University and is a former president of the Organization of American Historians. He is a MacArthur Fellow and a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and his books, which include The Republic for Which It Stands and Railroaded and The Middle Ground, have won a litany of awards and prizes. He's here to talk about his latest book, California Exposures, Envisioning Myth and History, which he co-created with his son, the photographer Jesse Amble White, and which came out in 2020 with W.W. Norton and Company Press. Welcome back to the New Books Network, Richard. Good to have you. It's good to be here, Steve. Thank you. So we usually begin our interviews on the New Books Network, uh, particularly on the the history-related channels, by asking our guests about how they got involved in history, how they became interested in history, uh, sort of their background as historians. But when I had you on the show to talk about the republic for which it stands a couple years ago, I already asked you that question. So I thought maybe instead uh, you could tell us a little bit more specifically about how you became interested in the history of the American West and California specifically. Well, I grew up in California. I grew up in Los Angeles, um, and even though I was born in, born in New York. And the thing is, when I came to California, what I realized I wasn't in the East anymore. Um, and the differences that I noticed growing up in the San Fernando Valley, growing up in Orange County, is that all the markers of identity they learned in the East didn't make the same sense in California. When I was in the East, people ask you, where are you from? Um, they meant, where were your grandparents born? Um, when I was in the East, the markers were between Catholics and Jews, all different kinds of Catholics and Jews. When I came into California, I realized that what mattered in California was um, whether you were white, whether you were um, Mexican, which is largely Mexican-American at the time, um, whether you were black. Um, and that all the kinds of things I've been sensitive about, all the divisions I'd made, all the people I associated were me or not like me were just totally different out here. And part of it is I became fascinated by that. The other part is I became a teenager. I began to meet Native peoples. I began to meet Indian peoples. I met them working in canneries. I worked, met them working at odd jobs. And they were the first Native peoples I'd ever been around. Um, and eventually, after I went to college, I was involved in... Um, Indian fishing rights protests, I began to see a lot more of not just Indian peoples as individuals and places I worked, but in tribal communities. So all these things went together that the West for me was different. It was fascinating. It was, um, it showed me that how people drew markers, how they organized society could even in my own experience be very, very different between the East and the West. And I think much of my interest in history was trying to get to the bottom of that. Um, not so much my own identity, but, but where I fit in in the constellation of peoples that I found in the Western United States. So really, it sounds like your, your interest in history and your interest in the West were, were intertwined. You really can't separate the two. No. And, and, and the Western landscape fascinated me. I mean, there's, there's nothing like it in the East. Just the, the areas of, of empty territory, the much of California exposures, I think one of the roots of it is what I used to do as a, as a high school student. Once we had cars and could drive, we'd be out in the deserts, we'd be in the mountains, we'd pretend, particularly the mountains around Los Angeles and the canyons. And you would see up there all kinds of abandoned places. I mean, California was just full of abandoned shacks, places where people had once lived, old communes, old kinds of settlements that were just just gone. And that stuff fascinated me, too. What had gone on here in the relatively recent past? So I could see a past literally folded out in front of me. I'm not in the usual preserved sense of old buildings, because usually people say, well, the East has a past, and, and California, the West, really does it all. It has this nature. That's just absolute nonsense. Well, let's talk about this this particular book that, that we're here to discuss today. And it is, it's a pretty unique book in some ways. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the genesis of this book. Where did you and Jesse come up with this idea to write a history book that's based around Jesse's photo- uh, photographs of, of California? Well, it's it came out of an argument. Um, you know, Jesse had 
become curious about Mare Island. He was living in Sacramento at the time. And Mare Island is an abandoned military base in San Francisco Bay. And he was on a, a ferry boat. And he looked out and he saw the abandoned shipyard and he saw the island. And he thought, what in the world is that? And he asked me, and um, you know, I said what I knew about it. I said, when did World War II? It had been a big, big military base. It lasted into the Cold War, but I didn't know much more than that about it. And he started going out there, started taking photographs. And it's photographs of um, abandoned houses, abandoned factories, abandoned military bases, shipyards. And I started looking at him, and I was, I was absolutely fascinated by it. And he took me out there, and we wandered around, got in some trouble, got kicked off. But um, most of the places is pretty accessible. And um, when he got the, the photographs, I began trying to figure out what these photographs were about. And then the editor of Boom, it was John Christensen at the time, the magazine's now defunct, but it was a magazine on California, said, would you like to do an article about this? And I said, yeah. So we did a, a history of Mare Island based on Jesse's photographs, where I took the photographs and read them backwards. And after that, um, my editor at Norton saw it and said, would you like to do a whole book on this? But not just about Mare Island, but about California. And by that time, Jesse and I were um, working together in some other places, said the um, Sacramento Delta being one of them. And I said, yeah, let me talk to Jesse about it. And Jesse at first wasn't so sure. Um, Jesse thought that, in fact, what I claimed to be able to do was to look at the photographs and read a pass back into them. He wasn't, didn't think that's the picture he was taking. He thought when he photographed something, he was capturing a moment in time, which is something most photographers, not all of them, but most photographers think. And I made him a bet. I said, I bet you can select the pictures. Um, you can select what are the best pictures, and we'll agree on places we're going to photograph, but they won't be particularly historical. They're not going to be famous places. Um, and I bet from those photographs, I can read out of them a history of the entire state of California. And that became the basis of the book. As it turned out, I lost the bet. I could not read out the whole history of California, but I could read out a partial history of California. And I think I at least partially convinced Jesse that when he started taking these photographs, we captured him as a photographer. He was capturing a lot more than he immediately saw. And that when I first saw them, I couldn't understand why I took a photograph of someplace. But once I began to use the photograph, I could begin to dissect it, to turn it into, through a series of techniques, into um, a history, history of places. And I could connect those places one with the other. What was the process like, or maybe a better question is, what was the experience like of writing this sort of different style of history books, and in particular writing it with your son? I mean, writing a, writing a history book is often a very solitary process, and even when someone you know is co-writing a book, it's rare that they're doing it with a relative. So what was that experience like? It seems like it was more fun, if nothing else. It, it was fun and it was fraught. I mean, because par partially it's father and son stuff, and you don't see it being father and son just because you're working on something together. So that a lot of it was, um, you know, I could not claim the kind of authority I'd been used to claiming as a father. And um, he could not develop the same kind of attitude he's usually developed as a son. And because instead we had to turn out a product. Something was, was happening here. And as it went on, it became more and more fun, partially because I didn't understand fully what he did. So I learned a lot. I learned how it was that we took, he took the photographs he did. And it involved usually because... He was very sensitive about the light, so we had to be out there either early in the morning or um, late in the afternoon or early evening when he got the kind of light he wanted. Because Western light, um, in the light in the American West, light in California can be very, very tricky. So part of it is we were out there together, so we spent a lot of time. And we spent a lot of time watching each other and trying to figure out what was going on. And we spent a lot of time talking to each other. Um, and we spent a lot of time wondering about the places we we were. And then we spent a lot of time having people be very suspicious about what we were wandering around and what we were doing there. Um, and sometimes getting kicked off places, sometimes people were being honestly curious. But it was the most fun I've ever had writing a book. I've written books with relatives before because I did a book on memory with my mother. But this one was different because this was really a different kind of collaboration. So I think I never had as much fun or as much enjoyment from writing a book, nor did I learn so much about things I didn't know as I did, did here. Um, and we got over the fraught stuff. Um, I think in the end, both of us, both of us enjoyed it a great deal. 
And as environmental historians, we tend to spend a lot of time outside anyway, but this book in particular, I mean, almost all of the pictures, just thinking off the top of my head, are, are in outdoor spaces. So if nothing else, you probably got some good hiking in, I imagine. Oh, yeah. yeah. We be, and if you go to places in California, I normally would not go because we, we made a decision. A lot of California has been um, written about so much. Um, what do I have to say new about Yosemite? Not a whole lot. You know, what do I have to say new about San Francisco, let's say? Probably not a whole lot, or the Redwoods, or any of the iconic landscapes of California. But what when you start going to places which people pass by but never look at? What happens when you start going into the Central Valley, the San Joaquin Valley? What happens when you start looking at a place like the Tulare Basin? What happens when you look at not at the iconic rivers of California, but you look at the San Gabriel River, which everybody just regards as a junk river? Um, what when you look at not just the classic missions, but the missions which people don't visit that often, San Gabriel and San Fernando? Um, when, when you start looking at these places, uh, or a place like Allensworth, which I didn't even know existed, which was a black community at the edge of the Tulare Basin, then, in fact, all kinds of questions pop up. All kinds of things show up that you hadn't seen before, and you realize how dramatically changed this landscape is. I mean, I've, of course I knew that as an environmental historian, but I didn't know that um, in the Tulare Basin the land had dropped 20 feet and was dropping still. Um, and I didn't know the kinds of differences those made. I knew there had been a lake there, but I had no idea how large that lake was and how many native peoples, um, how many yokuts lived around it and what had happened to them. So all of these things, this uh, California, which I thought I knew, just opened up in front of me. This book is, is full of tremendous photographs, and your, your writing very thoughtfully uh, connects both um, California myth and history to those photographs. Uh, and in some ways, um, you know, an audio medium like a podcast is not particularly well suited to a book like this one, which is, you know, so related to, to visual storytelling. And on top of that, we don't, you know, it would take a very long time to go through each and every photograph and the stories connected to them today. So... I was wondering, you divide the book into, into eight sections, so maybe we could talk about one representative place and the image and history associated with that place from, east, from each section in, in the book, as to kind of give an overview for, for our listeners about what, what the book is all about and the story of California that you tell there. Um, and I'm wondering if we could begin, as you do in the book, with Port Reyes and uh, the photograph of the cliffs at Drake's Bay. Can you tell us about this photo and about what it means for the, the mythical founding, and I put that word in scare quotes, the mythical founding of California? Sure. Um, Point Reyes, and particularly D Ranch, which is just above the, the, um, the cliffs, is a place I've visited for years. I used to actually teach a class at Point Reyes. And, um, Point Reyes always fascinated me initially because it's a wilderness area that's um, just north of San Francisco. And of course, wilderness is a cultural construct. So that wilderness area of Point Reyes had actually been dairy farms and cattle ranches up until the very recent past, into the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Um, so I, I knew the place as a, as a national seashore, as a national park. And the cliffs come in because it turned out that um, on D Ranch, at the very edge, is the place that Sir Francis Drake was supposed to have landed in the 1570s, which was then celebrated as the founding of Anglophone California, the real discovery of California. Now, of course, Drake was not the first European to be there, but he was the first English-speaking European. So he became, at the end of the 19th and through much of the 20th century, this central figure. And that Point Reyes and, and Drake's Bay and the cliffs which Drake identified with the White Cliffs of Dover became this place where um, modern America had begun. It was California's Plymouth Rock. The argument was that Drake had brought English-speaking California here it had disappeared, but the beginning had never been forgotten. It had always been preserved in maps and legends. And eventually, Americans as descendants of the English came back. And it all linked together into how California was really not, didn't, it had a native past, but that had been given to Drake by the Indians who had welcomed them. The Spanish past was just an illusion. It was just temporary. The real, the real roots of the place were from English-speaking peoples, and of course, English-speaking peoples returned and made a Protestant um, Anglo-Saxon California. 
So there is where Drake becomes this sort of racial and cultural hero in ways we're sort of embarrassed about now and forget about. But once you start looking for him, you can find monuments to him all around San Francisco Bay. But the part which was interesting, and it's really pretty funny. I mean, much of this in the book that at least I found um, not only funny, but sometimes hilarious, is that for Drake and for um, the Drake's Bay, nobody could agree on where Drake was. Everybody went looking for Drake, found him, but they kept finding him in different places. And they'd have these heated arguments about where Drake had really come. Now, Drake had come someplace. I'm pretty satisfied about that. But I am not sure, in fact, that the place they identify at the Drake's Cove is really the place he was. It's possible, but I, I doubt it. Um, but then again, you know, it's going to be an argument that nobody really cares about anymore. What I cared about is why people cared to begin with. Why, in fact, you have Drake's Cross up in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Why you have um, plaques commemorating Drake in Point Reyes. All of these things go on. And once, once these things go on, I wasn't the only one who found it funny because in the 1930s, people started playing pranks here. Somebody deposited as a joke, a iron, it wasn't even iron, it was a, it was a brass plate that um, Drake supposedly had left to claim California for Queen Elizabeth. This was showed up in the 1930s. It was supposed to be, at the time, a joke. It was a joke on Herbert Bolton, the scholar who really believed all this Drake stuff. And when they found it, um, the people who had made it tried to reveal it's a joke. I mean, actually, there's there's markers on the back that will reveal it. They published a little book which said this basically said this is not real. Look at this, but it didn't made no difference. The plaque ended up in the Bancroft Library in Berkeley. It was reproduced all over the place. It showed up in World's Fairs, and they just after a while just gave up, gave up. And it's only going to be in the late 20th century that the plaque is revealed to be a fake. But what it, for me, what it revealed was the sort of credulity, the endless credulity that if you want something to be true, you will find ways to believe it to be true. And no matter how much the evidence is flawed that gives these sort of myths um, some sort of material basis, you will look right through it. And it's not just ordinary people. Scholars did. Some scholars were skeptical. But when you end up in the Bancroft Library, when Bolton himself believes it's true, there's something really interesting going on there. So for me, the white, the cliffs, the white cliffs in Point Reyes go back to Drake, go back to this whole long story, the myth of the Anglo-Saxon founding, which has only now begun to disappear because, in fact, nobody really has that much of a hold on Anglo-Saxon California. Nobody cares enough um, to, to really bother about this anymore. But for the evidence of how important it was, that's all still out there. I also thought that the the section on on Bolton believing this uh, this this story was was pretty funny and uh, made me reflect that you know we as as historians we don't really play those kind of pranks on each other anymore and uh, that's probably for the best but it it still was funny to read nonetheless. Yeah, it's it's funny and the other thing is is that you know one of the things I've realized in this book which I've done in, in other recent books too. You know, when historians talk to each other, the conversations are usually pretty funny. A lot of the stuff we find <laughs> is actually hilarious. But when we write our books, we leave all that stuff out. I thought, no, this time I'm not going to leave all that stuff out. Part two of the book is centered around the mission myth. And this section uses as its touchstone, as you touchstone, excuse me, as you said a little while ago, the San Gabriel mission uh, and, and a picture of how it appears today. Can you give a little brief overview of what the mission myth is for those who might not know um, and how it's represented by the, 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 the photos like those in this section and why the mission myth is important to understanding California history and memory? Sure. I mean, the, the interesting thing about the um, San Gabriel mission is that Jesse's pictures of the myth, which the, excuse me, of the mission, which has been repainted and restored and in many ways can be a, a quite um, enchanting and beautiful place, that no longer exists. The mission burned down last year. Um, not burned down totally. There was a fire inside which destroyed much of it. I haven't, I haven't heard whether it was arson. I know they were suspecting arson. So that even as Jesse took the pictures to be the present-day mission, it is no longer the present-day mission. That it will probably be restored again, but the photographs Jesse made have now become historical photographs. And what we do with those photographs is I go back and begin to read them back into the way the mission looked when we first beginning to get representations of it. 
which were around some um, lithographs in the 19th century, then Carlton Watkins photographs, and it was widely photographed in the, in the um, 20th century. And what you can see is the mission changing, and it's changing to reflect a vision, not of what the mission was in the 18th century and early 19th century, but of what missions were supposed to be under the mission myth. And the mission myth is not a creation of the Catholic Church. <laughs> it's not even a creation of the Franciscans, but they've been able to, to um, latch onto it. It's a creation of Charles Loomis and Americans in the late 19th and early 20th century. And what it goes to is a way to make Southern California the center of a new American identity. It's going to be an American identity which is not going to be based on conquest, but again, like the Francis Drake myth, is the missionaries come in, they're welcomed by the Indians, and they turn it into this garden, this California garden, which is a place of both civilization and leisure, but also of enterprise and prosperity. And it's going to be a place where it's not going to be racial equality. Indians are going to live, but they're going to live um, with Anglo-Saxons becoming, or not Anglo-Saxons in this case, but Europeans, and later when the Americans come in, with Anglo-Saxons being the dominant race. But they're going to learn from all this to have a softer, gentler version of America, a place where you can escape the problems of the East, the harshness of Eastern cities, and live in the California sunshine. And the missions become the symbol of all of this. Now, what Loomis wanted to do was not to um, recreate the missions. He didn't want to rebuild them. He just wanted to preserve the ruins. But what we've done is, in fact, recreated them. All the missions you see today are largely recreations, rebuildings of what they once were. But what they're supposed to show is a kind of beginning here, a kind of softer beginning of California, a place where California stands against the East as the place of the California dream, the kind of the place where, in fact, you can be prosperous, but it's going to be a prosperous prosperity which will also indulge leisure. It's not just constant work. It's going to be a place where you live in, in the beauty in a perfect climate. And all this stuff is connected with the missions. Um, and then, since the missions weren't like that, since the missions actually were places of some horror for Native peoples, what you do is erase that and create these um, replicas of missions where you will be able to indulge in your own fantasy. The missions become a fantasy landscape. And in some ways, there's relatively little difference between the fantasy mission and the kinds of fantasy you see in amusement parks like Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California. And in the book, you represent, uh, through photographs, the indigenous history of California in several other uh, uh, places as well. Part three, for instance, is called Coyote and the Tachis, which tells that history. Um, and that history is interwoven with myths of tricksters and myths and histories of settlement and, and histories of genocide. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that particular, the, the photograph that begins that section and about this history in general? Sure. Let me um, open up the photograph you're talking about is Coyote and the Tachis, which is a sign showing the Tachi Hotel and Casino. So, so what it is, is just a billboard. This is the kind of thing I might never would have, never would have noticed, excuse me. And it's, it's simply having people driving by to know there's a casino there. And it's run by the Tachis. When Jesse took the photograph, um, two things struck out, stood out to me. First of all, I had no idea who the Tachis were. I mean, I've studied Native peoples my whole career. I had no idea who the Tachis were. The second thing was, is he transposed two signs, one of which says is um, casino, and it points over there, and it says, always a great time. It invites tourists in. The sign next to it says, Tachi Yokuts, no trespassing. So what you have here is a kind of conflict between the sign saying, come to the casino, the other sign saying, you're on Tachi land, get out of here. Um, and it's that kind of conflict where actually if the Tachis had stuck more with the no trespassing sign, as I say in the book and from the very beginning, they probably would have been better off. But it shows the complexity of California. The Tachis are still there. And it led me to begin to um, wonder who were the Tachis. And Coyote was there, but I'm always suspicious of Coyote because Coyote's on the billboard. But Coyote has been sanitized. Coyote's turned into this... Um, figure for children's stories. You'll see them in children's books for California when they're trying to be multicultural. But the way Native peoples de describe coyote and the way the Tachis describe coyotes, coyote's nasty. 
I mean, most of the things Coyote does um, involve uh, Coyote being led around by his penis, and things often do not turn out real well. Coyote's a trickster. Sometimes he does good. Sometimes he screws everything up. And so what I began to do is to look at the myth, the mission myth, because there was supposed to be a mission there, it was never going to be bit, built, um, and to try to understand, well, what do the... What do the Tachi say in their myths about the founding of California, their own contact with Europeans? And what I found is there are a few coyote stories. And the coyote stories have whites coming in, but they don't make a whole lot of sense. The whites come in wagons, but the wagons are full of coyotes. Coyote is in the wagon. Coyote is not the trickster standing up for the Tachis. Coyote is in the wagon. And the Tachis themselves will attack the wagon dump them into the stream, kill the coyotes. Um, it's a story I didn't really understand. The only part I can really get out of it is that um, for, the, for the Tachis, whites were as much coyotes, tricksters, unreliable characters as they were anything else. They were somebody who they were trying to fit into their own stories. But at the same time, if I didn't understand the Tachi stories, it turned out I didn't understand the white stories too. There's going to be a series of stories, the major one being the Woods Massacre, which is a founding story the whites make up about how it is they came to be there. And the story is, is that a guy named Woods had come there and settled there, had been friendly enough with the Tachis at first, but something had happened. They'd warned him out, and then they'd attacked him and wiped out his whole party. And that when the whites came back, of course, they would exact vengeance on the Tachis, which is a very typical kind of story you see all over the West, is that, you know, the reason for white violence is it's just retaliating for native violence. So I began to look at the Woods Massacre, and I couldn't find the Woods Massacre. I couldn't find Woods, but it turned out there was a massacre that took place there. Um, the massacre that took place was did not involve... Anglo-Americans. It involved an attack on vaqueros who were coming up driving cattle to the gold fields. And the contents of this were themselves um, quite confusing. So as I went through it, something had happened there, but I couldn't tell what it was. But it turns out that most of the vaqueros are probably San Gabriel Indians, San Gabrielanos. There were mission Indians who were at work for a cattleman driving it up, so the victims of the Woods Massacre were by and large going to be themselves Native peoples, attacked by other Native peoples in a complicated kind of contact. And so this story then will go on and have all these ramifications through the 20th century. So a story which is always muddled, which largely involves the death of Indians, largely at the hands of other Indians, becomes an excuse of white settlers coming in, being massacred by Indians, and will justify everything that happens. And after the Wood Massacre, then there is a story of genocide. Then there is a story in which the Yokuts are going to be attacked, starved, evicted, and beaten by um, gold rush participants and by later cattlemen. It's a horrific story, which leads to a, a rapid decline in population in the 19th century. So what I have is a series of myths which are connected to actual events, which are this attempt to make sense out of a period of absolute horror. It's the opposite. It's the reverse side of the mission myth. This doesn't begin in a kind of mutual consent. It doesn't begin in a, a, a shared prosperity. This begins in horrific violence, which drives people out. And the, the, the kind of historical game of telephone that you describe with the, the Woods Massacre is, you know, it's something that I, I tell my students all the time that, you know, often in history, you know, obviously history matters and the truth matters, but often what motivates people is the story, which matters right. sometimes a great deal more than, than the truth on the ground, which, uh, you know, is kind of, it can be a tough pill to swallow for, for undergraduates, but it's an important, it, it, the way you tell it here kind of indicates how important that is to really understand. Yeah, because it, history, I mean, it's in the word itself. History is about stories. Um, and what all we do as historians is we tell a very disciplined kind of story. Um, and if you miss, there are also stories, but there's stories which, in fact, they know what the point has to be and they arrange the story about it. The stories historians tell is we don't know what the point's supposed to be. And when you go into some of these stories, it's sometimes quite hard for us to figure it out. And we realize they're quite conflicting points that are going to be made in them. 
What is the story of the Temple family, which brings us into part four of the book? Uh, and what picture do you and Jesse use to tell that to tell that story? There's a, a line in the book that I really appreciate where you describe the temples as, and I'm quoting you here, a simulacrum of the development of Southern California. How is that the case, uh, do you think? And what picture describes this story? Okay, let me, because most of this stuff, what I usually have to go back to, because there's so many pictures, <laughs> I have to see which picture I, I'm using on, on the temples, uh, because I use quite a few. Um, I'm skipping back through all of these places here. I tried to pick the, 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 the images that I'm describing, at the, the ones that okay, are at the, the start beginning. of the So of you're, you're talking about yeah. the braided rivers picture. They yes, come back exactly, there. exactly. Yeah. Okay, so this is a place actually um, near where one of the places I lived as a child. I lived in La Habra, which is about 10 miles from this. But it's, a, it's going to be part of the rivers that are going to feed into the San Gabriel River. And what it is, is you can't tell from the picture, it shows uh, a horseman. And the horseman has on, if you've lived in Southern California, you notice a lot of, you can recognize where some Mexican migrants are from by the kind of hats they wear. And so what he's wearing is a kind of, white Mexican cowboy hat that you will notice that these are guys probably from central Mexico. And they've probably grown up around horses all their lives. And um, he is riding a horse through uh, a wetland, through what's what's a, a part of a river, and there's oak trees in the background. If you look carefully, the way Jesse's framed it, is he doesn't give you any sense that you're really out in the middle of nowhere because you can see power lines behind that. You can see a house back up on a hill. But if you look only in the foreground, you're just seeing a horseman riding through a river through a brushy, with a brushy hillside behind him. Um, and this is a place that's very near the original site of San Gabriel Mission. And San Gabriel Mission is going to be broken up and the land is going to be allotted to um, a group of Mexican landowners under the Mexican Republic. And it's going to be the basis of a lot of the ranchos around there. And what I do is I trace through two families, and it can be... Um, confusing because the family's names are Temple and Workman. And you'd think this is going to be an Anglo um, families who have somehow come into possession of the ranchos. And there's a part of truth in that because, in fact, Charles Workman and Jonathan Temple are both going to be Anglos who will marry into very prominent um, California families um, who are land-grant holders. But their children speak Spanish, their wives are Spanish, their descendants are Spanish. And even though they'll carry around Anglo names, they're going to be this mixed um, family which will identify, particularly the temples, with their California background. And then there's another one of these really surprising stories where, in fact, the story is about how the temples lost their land but maintained a small part of it, and then how oil is discovered on that land. And when oil is discovered on that land, it allows them to begin buying back part of um, the land that they'd, that they'd lost. And in fact, to recover their California heritage by building this mansion, which reflects this, this idea of old California, um, California. But of course, the oil runs out and the investments are bad and they go wrong during the Depression. And having regained everything, they will end up losing everything. Um, one of them becomes something of a historian. I use him in other senses. And another descendant who's named Josephine Temple enters the movie. And even though the temples have taken what had been Indian land, she now um, becomes Princess Mona Darkfeather and becomes a Hollywood actress who portrays Indians, even though her own family is part of a family which dispossessed Indians and then got dispossessed itself. And this is what I mean. You look at these kinds of stories as they develop. Um, what a complicated place we live in. Um, how, how hard it is to describe in either uh, uh, the kind of usual narrative that we do this day about, well, it's just simply about white conquests. Well, yeah, it's about white conquests, but it's about a whole lot more than that. This is a really complicated place. And sometimes it's really hard to tell who's who. One thing that I've noticed uh, both in this book and in other uh, books and articles that you've written is you have a good eye for the, the ridiculousness in a lot of, of, of history. And uh, I thought that the story of the temples was, was that to, to a degree. Was, it was one of those stories that was, you know, by turns funny and unbelievable. And uh, yeah. I, I appreciated you telling it in the book. And there's, Part, there's actually, 
there's a wonderful, if you're anybody's down there, there's a wonderful museum which restore, keeps part of the Temple family stuff going, but um, it's rarely visited these days. In part five of the book, uh, which you call Capital, uh, Jesse photographs, and here I'll reveal um, my own East Coast roots and probably pronouncing this wrong, but Jesse takes a picture of the, the Carquines Strait in San Francisco Bay, um, which is an image that you explain reveals the emergence of human beings in the state as a geological force. What do you mean by that, as a, a geological force? What does this image tell us about the history of capitalism and environmental change in California during the late 19th century? The um, Carquinez Strait is a channel that runs between, and it's hard to say where it begins and where it ends, because it's like many things, the beginning and endings of these things are murky. It connects the um, San Joaquin-Sacramento Delta with San Francisco Bay. So it's a, it's a place where all the commerce originally in the 19th century that came out of down the Sacramento River, the San Joaquin River, it would all come into San Francisco Bay. Um, through the Carquinez Straits. But more than that, because it connects with the Sacramento and San Joaquin Rivers, and particularly the Sacramento, it connects with the Sierra Nevada, which is the source for many of these rivers. The, the tributaries flow down into the Sacramento, and then they run down into um, the bay. Now, the picture just shows abandoned wharfs. I mean, it shows, just imagine a wharf where the top has been stripped off, all that's left is the poles, and you've had 100 years for them to to rot, and all it shows is those poles at low tide, and they're surrounded by um, debris, particularly rock um, and small rocks and debris that have that have built up around them. And the way I interpret the picture is it shows two things. What the docks were for was when California's economy was based on wheat, not gold, but wheat, after the end of the gold rush, where the wheat would come down and would be loaded onto ships to be sent out to um, Great Britain, because most of it went not by railroad. It went across the Pacific and to England on sailing ships. And this is the place, one of the places they loaded. This was in the 19th century, a commercial hub. And once the wheat trade stops, once California goes to other crops, many of which do move by rail, then in fact, this place is obsolete. The wharfs are going to be abandoned. That's not the only thing that moved down there. It wasn't just wheat. What's moving down those rivers is going to be debris from hydraulic mining. It is the way that, in fact, the end of the gold rush up there is it's not going to be miners. It's going to be people putting water cannons, pointing them at the sign of hillsides and mountainsides, washing them away in order to get it um, underlying gold. And all that debris will run into the rivers. It'll fill up the rivers. And gradually, like this giant slug, if you can imagine the um, rivers like a gun, this is this slow-moving bullet that comes out and it'll come into San Francisco Bay. And it's going to kill large parts of San Francisco Bay. It's going to raise the levels. It's going to help um, wipe out oyster beds. It's going to um, turn much of it into a desert. And it's going to um, change the whole geology of the bay um, as long as it was, as it was coming down. So what this picture shows is both things. It shows the debris, it shows the docks, and in this, if you look at the picture, you are seeing a history of California in the 19th century. You don't recognize it. You're just seeing a bunch of wood around there. But really what you're seeing is how things move through the state, how commerce moved through the state. And we come back to humans being a geological force, how human beings have literally rearranged the way that water flows, the bay works, the ecology of the whole era, um, that has begun when miners start sluicing these mountainsides away in the 19th century. And mobility is really a theme throughout uh, a lot of both uh, of the book and the pictures in, in the book uh, as well. And part six begins with a photograph. Um, it's another photograph of, of a mission. I believe it's also the San Gabriel mission. Uh, but this time it's sort of placed in its context with a busy street next to it and a Los Angeles uh, train yard sort of in, in the background. What story do these transposed symbols, particularly that of the train, tell about 20th and even 21st century California? Okay. The train comes in because the, the California, the mission, of course, is the mission. It's going to be this recreation of, of 18th, early 19th century California. And the train when we, in the picture looks utterly incongruous. Here, here you have this mission that's been restored with palms and with the statue of Sarah in front, Father Sarah in front. And you have this train coming right by it. Well, the trains have been going by it for quite some time. And if you begin to peel away the train, the train is what made Southern California. I mean, what makes Southern California boom is when the Santa Fe Railroad and the Southern Pacific Railroad 
get into uh, a rate war, which will bring all kinds of people into California. But more than that, for the first time, you can begin getting fruit to East Coast markets and on the train in a way in which um, winter fruits from California will become a steady presence in East Coast markets, and it makes the orchards of California viable. Southern California is going to boom because of the orchard industry. Now, the orchards are going to take up the San Gabriel Valley. They're going to take up on parts of the San Fernando Valley. The California I grew up in in the 1950s, 1960s, the orchards are beginning to die out. They're giving way to suburbs. But people my age still remember these orchards all over the valleys around Los Angeles. But what they don't remember is that these orchards were artifacts of the railroad train. Without the train, without the ability of the railroads to get these things to market, um, then you are not going to have uh, the kind of economy that Southern California enjoyed. And it makes things which look ridiculous to us, this old Southern Pacific postcard of a train running through an orchard, this kind of pastoral, what's a train running through an orchard? What's that about? It's a recognition that that's literally how these places were created. Um, that without the train, there's going to be nothing there. So you have the orange grove, you have the steam engine. And for us, it looks incongruous. For them, this is simply the obvious association. That postcard reminded me quite a bit of those kind of classic late 19th century bird's eye view images that seemingly yep. every single town in the United States had that would show things like, you know, this sort of idealized environment, you know, with, with this sort of technology that was also very foregrounded. That it, it struck me the same kind of concept, the same sort of argument basically being made by that image. Yeah. And I, and I show a bird's eye view of San Gabriel, California um, in, right. in the book. And one of the interesting things was is. We use drones because one of the things drones would do, one of, the, one of the things you realize how rural California, they are so property conscious. I mean, everything is no trespassing, but they haven't figured out what to do about drones yet. So what we could do is we could put <laughs> drones up above much of central California and get the pictures we wanted. And what I realized is what you realized too, what we're doing is recreating the bird's eye view, except ours is quite literal. We're not imagining it. We send the drone up and can take the pictures, which in some way are through our techniques are replicating exactly the techniques used by um, the people who made the lithographs of these places in the 19th century. So it's one of these historical accidents that, the, that we replicate the past we're trying to represent. Right. One of my favorite images in the book is uh, toward the end of, of Corcoran, California, and it's of uh, uh, cotton bales in blue and white beneath this kind of pale blue uh, California sky. I found it to be a very arresting photograph. Um, I'm wondering, tell us, how can these cotton bales tell stories of 20th century California that connect things as disparate as the Second World War and Bob Hope? And you also describe, uh, uh, you know, all of these stories as representative of what you call your Los Angeles. So how is that the case? Okay, so the cotton bales surprised me. When Jesse took them, I mean, again, as a historian, I knew that there, we, that there was a great deal of cotton that had been grown in, um, in the Central Valley, and especially the San Joaquin Valley. But I had no idea what a, what a cotton bale looked like after it had been wrapped in plastic. And this was this picture of cotton bales wrapped in a, in a yard before they're going to be loaded. And they're going to be particularly around... Um, the Boswell Corporation, which is the Boswell Corporation really is going to, um, J.W. Boswell is going to run much of the Tulare Basin. So when Jesse took the picture, it allowed us to begin looking at um, the cotton bales and Corcoran. And Corcoran is a place which is going to be connected because of real estate development with the San Fernando Valley, and that'll connect it with Bob Hope, but I'll come back to that. I'll stick with cotton for right now. And what we realized is that cotton is now beginning to fade out for a variety of reasons I won't go into here, though there's still plenty of cotton that's going to be grown in the, in the Central Valley. But we started driving out through the old Tulare Lake Basin to places where, in fact, they're still planting cotton, though other, other crops have begun to come in. And what you have is it's one of the most fascinating places I have ever seen. It is literally like being at sea. There's nothing out there. You can see the mountains in the distance and way you can see dust clouds being kicked up and something that looks literally like ships. But as you get closer, it's going to be turn out to be tractors, which are gang tractors plowing up the land, huge work crews at work out there. 
you're going to be able to see no fishing signs and ditches which are totally empty because they haven't filled up the ditches yet where the water will come in some of it groundwater some of it irrigation water um, and you begin to see the places which in the distance look like islands but they're going to be work camps and the whole place except for the roads is all no trespassing you're also seeing this landscape in which there are giant dikes erected and you can't figure out why you come up over the dike and down the dike but there's no water. All there is is this sort of dust and dirt onto the, into, way into the distance. And you begin to realize that what you're really doing is going through the old lake bed, which was turned into in the heyday and still partially there, into these vast cotton fields from which a fortune is made, by which the Boswell Company is going to have made a ton of money, be the largest agricultural producer in California, though a family that most Americans have never, ever heard of. They're immense landowners. So what we did there is come in to see, begin to see that and begin to see how this agriculture developed, this, this agriculture which took over the old Yokut land and turned it into cotton fields. And it also is a place like Corcoran, which is a, a company town, but as agriculture begins not so much to dry up, but to become more and more mechanized, what they've become is a town now that depends on prisons. If anybody's heard of Corcoran, it's because it's where Charles Manson ended up just before he died. He died while we were writing the book. So you've gone from a landscape which is based on agriculture, some bitter labor fights, um, impoverished migrant labor. Now its economy is based on prisoners. Um, and it's a, a way in which you think, what, you know, it, much of this, these places are a horror story. This is, this is what's happened here. They produce great wealth. At the same time, they produce um, impoverished people and they produce incarcerated people. And that's how the economy runs. So we, we had that, but Corcoran wasn't supposed to be that way. The same people who developed the valley tried to develop um, Corcoran. But in fact, the Corcoran development failed. It didn't turn into the kind of small ranchettes they wanted to have in the San Fernando Valley. And that brings me back to the San Fernando Valley, which is another place where I grew up. I grew up in Tarzana, which is named after the old Edgar Rice Burroughs estate. And actually, for a while, we lived in Edgar Rice Burroughs' old barn, which had been turned into a house, a place my mother hated because this odd yellow dust drifted down. She could never get rid of it. And then we moved out to Woodland Hills. And in Woodland Hills... Um, down the street, these had been ranches which had been partially developed. They called them ranches, but they're really 40 acres and divided up among large landowners. And there'd been some orange orchards and, and fairly wealthy people had had them. But those had been break, broken up by the time we moved there and they were turning into subdivisions. But down the street from us had been Bob Hope's brother's ranchette. So we lived down the street from Bob Hope's brother, which always gave me this association with Bob Hope. And Jesse knew this because I told him stories about that. When he was taking pictures of San Fernando Valley Mission, he found the Bob Hope Memorial Garden, which had, of course, Our Lady of Hope over it. And Bob Hope was buried there. Um, and he took it as a joke. But I thought, well, what's up with this? You know, first of all, I began to look at Bob Hope converted to Catholicism at his wife's urging. He owed her at least that. He'd been a miserable husband. Um, when he was nearly 100. And when the joke goes, when he asked, um, where would you like to be buried? He said, um, surprise me. Well, maybe he'll be surprised. He's buried in a mission. And he's buried in a mission. His other relatives are buried around him. But the, the irony there is that, of course, the mission is full of bodies. Um, because the missions were a death trap for Indian peoples. Um, thousands of people died there. Bob Hope has his own grave, the Bob Hope Memorial Garden. All there is in the other part of it is going to be a cross. It's going to be a cross to all of the thousands of Indians who have died there, whose bodies are someplace around there. Um, and that what we have in the missions is that it's been turned into a perfect ending for the mission myth. It's become a celebration of a white famous actor, an immigrant from England, who becomes a Catholic, who donates to the mission and who is celebrated there. The mission, which is founded to convert Indians, has been resurrected, recreated, but the actual Indians 
The memorial to them is one wooden cross and their bodies scattered throughout, though in other ways they haunt the mission. So it's the juxtaposition of the two I found absolutely fascinating. And if Jesse hadn't taken that picture, I never would have noticed it. And then finally, you end the book in part eight with stories of water. And uh, this, this part uh, begins, the, the ending, I guess you could say, begins with an image of the California aqueduct. So what is the relationship between this image of the aqueduct and what you call the crisis of the San Joaquin Valley? Okay, what, what California has been doing, is, as you know, but actually most people even in California <laughs> do not know, has been rearranging the way water flows in, in the state um, on a large scale since the 1930s. And they've gone through a series of stages. It often gets collapsed together, but it's not. It's been several distinct stages. The first stage was they were trying to rescue farms in the San Joaquin Valley. And what the San Joaquin Valley farms had done is they had exhausted the water table, which had once been pretty high. So you could literally rely on ground irrigation or some places with alfalfa just planting it. There's enough water beneath the surface, everything would thrive. But as they plant orchards, as they begin to, to tap the wells and tap the aquifers, the water is retreating too deep. So they said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to replace that water with the water from the north. So what you begin to have is um, the projects that'll, that'll develop in the 1930s in which they'll bring down through aqueducts, this kind of Rube Goldberg um, arrangement, water from Northern California, pump it into the Central Valley. But the whole idea here is to really save the existing farms. It's not to create brand new farms, it's to save the existing farms. And that's what the New Deal tried to do through the first set of water projects. But the first set of water projects is not going to be the last set of water projects. There's going to be, and again, it's too complicated to go through the whole thing right now, but there's going to be a quarrel over the water. Um, there's not enough water coming in as, the, as agriculture begins to expand in the um, 1920s. So the California wants to bring even more water, both to bring agriculture to new areas, to open up new farms in the San Joaquin Valley around Bakersfield, but also to provide water for Los Angeles, which takes you into a whole other set of water stories, which started from the Colorado. But once you had Colorado water, Owens Valley water, Southern California still needs more water. And so what you're going to have is the um, state water project is going to try to bring more water down. But this will end up in a broad political controversy. And the broad political controversy is going to end up with the way you're going to pay for this is that part of the water is going to go into Los Angeles. So at any time you ride over the grapevine, you can see those pipes just pumping it up over into a series of places to hold it above the valley and then go on in. But the other valley, is, other water is going to go down towards Bakersfield. And in Bakersfield, Kern County, part of Kings County, you're going to have brand new agriculture. That agriculture is largely almond and pistachio these days. But it is going to be huge landholders. I mean, vast landholders. Most of the water that is go coming out of Northern California that goes into Los Angeles is going to provide water for two things. Agribusiness around Bakersfield and the ability to develop Los Angeles suburbs because otherwise they would not have been able to expand because the Owens Valley water and the Colorado Valley water is simply insufficient. So what you have of this moving the water, this moving the water down into Los Angeles, down into um, Kern County, is the way in which modern California is supposed to be, is supposed to be, is created. Now, the irony of all this stuff is this, what amounts to this vast subsidy to incredibly rich people is the work of liberal California administrations. It's going to be largely the work of um, Edmund G. Brown, and it's also going to be the great ambition to keep it coming of Jerry Brown. Um, when people think about water in Southern California, it has to be quite specific over which water and where it goes. And these water projects, I would argue, and I do argue in the book, have largely been these immense subsidies to the rich. They're disguised as if, in fact, they will allow middle class life and small farms, but that's not what they're about. They're about something else again. And in fact, which will happen in much of um, San Joaquin Valley, the place where the California Valley Project, the first 
the um, Central Valley project, the first water projects are supposed to go, are running out of water. Um, they're running out of water because, in fact, there's still not enough water. They've started tapping the aquifers again. The pumps are more powerful. The land is sinking. And what you have there is an environmental disaster all through the places that the original water project was supposed to save. You know, the, the job of the historian is not really to predict the future, but so much of the history of the West has been about water that, of course, the, the future of the West will be all about water as well. Yeah, and it's going to be. I mean, it's one of the things where, where I would, would caution people is that, you know, God knows that um, American infrastructure is in terrible shape. But be careful about American infrastructure projects. <laughs> We're about to see <laughs> in another one. Who is going to benefit from them? Where is this money going to go? I mean, if you're going to have an infrastructure project, just follow the money. If you don't follow the money, if you simply sit, settle for the fact, oh, it's going to give people jobs here, it's going to save this, it's going to save that, forget about what they say. Follow the money. See where this mm -hmm. stuff goes. Because much of California has been this vast investments of infrastructure, have benefited a few people a great deal, and have hurt very many people. So I love acknowledgments sections in books. Um, uh, I, I find that they do a really good job of getting at the kind of the materiality, the lived experience of writing a, a history book. But rarely on this uh, podcast do I get a chance to ask uh, the, the, the scholars and the writers that I have on about the acknowledgment sections in, in the book. But uh, I asked you ahead of time if I could ask you about uh, one one thing that you mentioned in the acknowledgments. And you said, sure, go ahead. And in the acknowledgments for, for this book, you mentioned, uh, and I'm, I'm going to quote you here, you say that you've used the Library for more than 40 years, but for the first time while writing this book, it refused to allow you access to a major collection, the, the J.G. Boswell Company Papers. And I was wondering if you could tell us the story of what happened here. What is this collection and why, what reason did the Huntington give you for barring you access from these papers? Okay. Uh, there's several stories that go through here, and I'll tell you what the official reason that the um, Huntington gave me. The J.G. Boswell Company papers, I mentioned Boswell already around Corcoran and cotton farming. They're a massive American agricultural company. They're one of the most important companies in the history of California. And their papers have been donated to the Huntington Library. And their papers, as far as I can tell, <laughs> I've seen some of the finding aids, but not all of them, are, are vast. So I asked to go through the Boswell papers because I'm writing about San Joaquin Valley, I'm writing about the Tulare Basin, they're the major landholders there, I'm writing about cotton, I'm writing about all these things that Boswell's critical to. And the librarian said, sure. Um, but then higher up, they got stopped. The librarians I worked with were told, no, you can't. And I, I pressed, um, because I said I've been there a long time, and I, and I wanted to know why I couldn't see them. And they said, well, we haven't had um, a chance to accession them yet. We haven't had a chance to go through them, and we don't want to have scholars going through unorganized papers. And I put that, I've been there for 40 years. I've gone through unorganized papers at the Huntington all the time. I also pointed out that the Huntington, as most libraries, is able to get papers much more quickly than they're able to access them and curate them because, in fact, they don't have the money to do that. Um, and let me get rid of this phone here. Um, I also... There's background noise for the phone that's distracting <laughs> me, so let me let me go back here. So, um, so it happens also, all the time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so I also knew um, that the Boswells had some connection with the Huntington, and the reason they donated their papers there, I heard, and I don't have an official source in this, but I have reliable sources, um, was that the Huntington wanted to get. A donation from the Boswells for the Huntington, which needs the money. Libraries always need the money. So the Boswells were not just people who were very important. They were potential donors, um, which, of course, always makes me suspicious when you're not allowed to see the papers of potential donors. And I also knew that the Boswells were very angry about a book they had cooperated on called The King of California, which had been a, an account of um, the J.G. Boswell Company and the development of the Central Valley. They hadn't liked it. And... Um, they didn't want scholars looking at the papers. 
Well, this creates something of a dilemma. When a library accepts papers, their job is to open them up to scholarship. That's what they're for. And when you accept papers, you don't allow the donors to say what is going to happen with the papers. The papers are now yours. All libraries sign this stuff. You can close them for a certain amount of times, but this is not that kind of a deal. This the excuse they're using is, oh, no, it's technical. We can't let you in. So I began to be very suspicious that the reason the Huntington did not want me to go into the papers is because and they're right. I'm an untrustworthy scholar. <laughs> I am not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna really look out for the feelings of the family who I'm, who, whose papers I'm examining. My obligation is to be fair. Um, but they weren't gonna let me in, and they didn't let me in. Um, no matter what pr I had pressure I could bring, I brought pressure. Didn't let me in. Um, and those papers, as far as I know, still have not been accessed. So what you have is a major collection. Um, after 40 years, they knew what they were getting with me. They'd given me a fellowship. I was there. I could not get in on the papers. And it's the first time in my whole academic career that I've simply been shut out of a set of papers that were, I thought were critical for a historical project. I've worked on other things. The book I'm working on now, which is to do around the uh, murder of Jane Stanford, all kinds of papers have disappeared. But even Stanford University will let me see what they have. Um, so it's, it, it, it was an unnerving experience for me. Yeah, and, and as you indicated, you know, it kind of raises the question of what is, what's, not to put it too cynically, but what's the point of holding on to papers if you're not going to let people yeah. take a look at them? Yeah, no, as I say, yeah. a research library should not be in the business of shutting down research. And that's, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. what the Huntington Library did. So as we, as we wrap up here, I always like to ask my guests to kind of take, uh, we were talking about bird's eye views earlier, to kind of take a bird's eye view on, on your book. And, and if there's one takeaway that you hope a reader uh, or a viewer, I guess we could say in the case of this book, might come away understanding from this text, what would that be? Uh, one thing I want people to understand is to look harder. Um, that when you look at a landscape, you are really seeing in front of you, if you will work hard enough at it, a history of the place itself, that in front of you are a whole set of ideas, a whole set of people, a whole set of past events that with a little bit of work, with a little bit of attachment, you can begin to uncover and unfold. And for me, the thing is, is I can't imagine people going through the world any other way. Um, the world is such a much more interesting place, such a much more revealing place, and such a place that's really necessary to know about when you know what you're looking at. This is a book about looking. This is a book about seeing. This is a book about knowing how to look and why photographs, not just what's in front of you, but a photograph of what's in front of you, which gives you the chance to mull over it, can be the most useful historical tool you might find. Historians use photographs as illustrations, but there's so much more. They really are research objects, um, which can be some of the most intriguing and entrancing things I have ever worked with in my life. And I always like to end the show by getting a brief uh, preview of whatever the project is that, that the, the, the writer that I'm, I'm talking to is working on next. And actually, when I had you on the show uh, the first time back in 2017, you gave a brief preview of this book, which was sort of a, a first for me to be able yeah. to, to follow a text from, from preview to, to actual publication. So you mentioned a couple minutes ago that you're working on uh, another project. What, what is that project? Could you talk slightly a bit more about it? Sure. It's a, it's, it's a, I taught a class at Stanford in several iterations. Um, that I called Who Killed Jane Stanford? Because Jane Stanford, the co-founder of Stanford University, was murdered. She died of strychnine poisoning. Um, and when she died of strychnine poisoning, that wasn't the first attempt to poison her. It was the second attempt. She was actually fleeing from the first attempt when she died of poison um, in the second attempt. And what I did in the class is I used it as a way to use a, a mystery, as a way to get people to be able to use archives and historical sources. And it worked quite well in that. But the problem with the class was that they're 10-week classes. You can't get to the bottom of anything in 10 weeks, and it's hard to get one class to build on another. And after a while, I just became intrigued because the class found out a lot, but it didn't find out everything. So I decided that anything that keeps me up, I start thinking about when I'm awake in the middle of the night, and I was really thinking about who killed Jane Stanford, is worth trying to get to the bottom of. So I thought, Okay, this will be a short book. I'm just going to go through, get the evidence, and try to figure out why in the world um, 
someone would try to kill Jane Stanford and why in the world other people were so interested in covering up the murder and making sure that it was never going to be completely investigated, which led me back all the way into the founding of Stanford University, its own sketchy past, the real complicated relationships of Jane Stanford. It led me into Gilded Age San Francisco, the corrupt politics there, it led me into Chinatown and the Tong Wars. It led me into police department corruption. It led me into the role that the newspapers played, especially around murder and murder trials in California. It led me into class relations between the upstairs and downstairs in California um, mansions. It led me into all kinds of fascinating places, and it ended up being really a micro-history of Gilded Age California and Gilded Age San Francisco. And in the end, though I'm not going to reveal it here, I think I did discover not only who killed Jane Stanford, how they killed Jane Stanford, and why it was that so many people wanted to make sure that the murderers would be protected. Ending on a cliffhanger. I, I, I like that. <laughs> um, and if you're willing, when the book comes out, we'll have you back on the show again to discuss it. Sure. Be glad to do it. Richard White is the Margaret Byrne Emeritus Professor of History at Stanford University. Uh, he's the author of many books and articles, and his latest book, co-created with his son, the photographer Jesse Amble White, is California Exposures, Envisioning Myth and History, which came out last year in 2020 with W.W. Norton and Company. Thank you again so much for joining me today, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure always.